we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a new covenant. And by New Testament, we mean the blood of Christ. We mean the cross. We mean the work of Christ on the cross. We're not talking about books when we talk about the New Testament. We are talking about the the blood of Christ. And that's how the Bible speaks about the New Testament. The Bible itself never refers to the New Testament as a collection of books. It's always the cross. It's always the blood of Christ. Jesus himself said, this is my blood given for the New Testament, which is a whole new way of relating to God that's not law-based, but it's grace-based, where we're assured we're fully forgiven forever, righteous forever, cleansed of all sins, purified of all sins, in right relationship with God and fellowship with God, all because of what Christ has done for us. And we simply, by faith, trust in what Jesus has done. Well, this is teaching number 55. It's entitled, Do Not Refuse Him Who Speaks. It comes out of Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. We're going to open our study reading Hebrews 12, 25 through 26, which reads this way. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Pay attention to that word there, speaks. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. We're going to look at this verse in its full context as we move through our study. But Hebrews 12, 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, to understand that, we have to go back to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, which reads this way. In the past, God spoke. So that's how the book of Hebrews opens up. In the past, God spoke. It concludes nearly the concluding words of the writer of Hebrews with, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And what the writer of Hebrews has done is he's communicated the message of the New Testament, the work of Christ, the identity of Christ in the book of Hebrews to seek to persuade the Jewish people who aren't believers in Jesus to come to faith in Jesus. Much of the book of Hebrews is evangelistic in nature. It's the writer of Hebrews has a heart for his Jewish people, and he's seeking to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus established the New Testament in his blood. And when he gets through explaining the message of who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done, he then says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And we're going to look more at that a little later, but he opens up Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 by saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors. That's the Jewish people. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors. That's all those in the Jewish scriptures from Genesis 12 forward, because the nation of Israel started in Genesis 12 with Abraham. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. So the prophets are Isaiah through Malachi, and they spoke about the Christ to come, the Messiah to come. You can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, that's the generation of Jewish people in AD 65, the generation before that, the generation after. God is speaking to the Jewish people now. Anything God has to say to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people, now comes through the person of Jesus. The prophets testified about the coming of the Messiah, and God is now speaking through Jesus, or he's, he's revealed himself through Jesus to the nation of Israel and to everyone, but specifically in Hebrews, 
the specific audience is not Gentiles. The specific audience in Hebrews is the title of the book, Hebrews. It's Jewish people. And the writer is saying, God is speaking to you, Jewish people, through his son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, the word son is a messianic title. So in the Jewish scriptures, God promised that one would come. He would be both a savior and a king. As savior, he would die to establish peace with God. And as king, he would rise from the dead to establish peace on earth. So as savior, he would bear a cross. As king, he would wear a crown. As savior, he would bear a cross to bring peace with God. As king, he would wear a crown to bring peace on earth. The title of the Messiah we see in the Jewish scriptures is son. So the Jewish people would have understood what the writer was speaking about when he uses the word son. Sadly, though, many of the Jewish people didn't think Jesus was the son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him also, he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. So we see that the two themes of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We see it's the identity of Jesus as the Son. That's what the writer is going to explain in Hebrews 1 and 2, that Jesus is the Son. He's the Son of God in Hebrews 1. He's the Son of Man in Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 1, he's the son of God, which means he's 100% God. He's greater than the angels in Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 2, he's lower than the angels because he's also fully human. And so in order to establish the New Testament of grace, the son would have to fully represent God. He would have to fully represent humanity to be the mediator between God and mankind to bring us into relationship with God. So the writer explains that in Hebrews 1 and 2. He talks about here in Hebrews 3 is after he, Jesus, had provided purification for sins. That's what he explains in pretty much the rest of Hebrews. He deals with the identity of Jesus in Hebrews 1 and 2 as the Son. Then he deals with the work of Jesus in Hebrews 3 following all the way to the conclusion of the book. Every now and then he'll sprinkle in words to the, the believer who's reading the book of Hebrews. But most of the book of Hebrews is written to convince the Jewish unbeliever to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and to believe in his work on the cross and that he established the New Testament of grace. After the Messiah, after the Christ, after the Son, who is Jesus, had provided purification for sins. Purification for sins is eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal cleansing from sins. So after the son provided purification for sins, he sat down. Not only is the work of the son eternal, but the work of the son is final. He sat down, meaning the work was done because the priest could never sit down. And the writer will explain that starting in Hebrews 7, fully in Hebrews 10, that the work of the priest was never done. The priest could never sit down. There were always more sins to be forgiven. Yet the son, he sat down because his work was eternal and his work was final. He provides complete, full purification for sins, which is full forgiveness of sins and complete cleansing from sins, which a person enters into the New Testament work of Christ. That's what the New Testament is. It's the work of Christ to purify from all sins, bringing full forgiveness and complete cleansing from sins, and a person enters into that New Testament work of Christ by trusting in Jesus, by faith, by believing, which is what the writer of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 3 and 4, to rest by faith, to rest by believing in Jesus and the work he's done, and to stop working for what the Son has fully done and fully accomplished.
I want us to take a look at the sun aspect here for a minute, which again is the title for the word Christ or the word Messiah, which means the coming Savior King. So we said as King, the Son, the Messiah, the Christ will establish peace on earth. As Savior, the Son, the Messiah, the Christ will establish peace with God. I want us to look at some verses that the Jewish people would have been very, very familiar with as it relates to the Messiah coming as King to establish peace on earth. Then we're going to look at some verses about the Messiah coming as Savior as well. But Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So we see that the Christ, the Messiah, this one to be born into the human race is going to establish peace, and it's going to be eternal peace. There will be peace without end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. So this one coming is going to be a king, and he's going to establish a kingdom of peace on earth. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, an eternal kingdom of peace. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, you can also look at Jeremiah 33, 15 through 16, which says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, from, meaning from the family tree of David, a righteous branch, a king. So the Christ, the Messiah, is going to be a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Some translations say will do what is just and right on earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he, the Messiah, the Christ, the king, the righteous branch coming from the line of David, this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So we see in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, that the Messiah, the Christ, the one that's coming into the human race to establish a kingdom of peace is going to be both Savior King. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 writes about this as well. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war, war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, the king, when he comes, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There's one coming into the human race, the prophets tell us, who's going to be a king and he's going to be a savior. And he's going to establish a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of righteousness on earth. Now, Micah is a prophet, and he tells us where this king is going to be born. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler, one who will be king over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. Then we see in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, the angel come to Mary, and the angel quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. The angel understood Jewish prophecy. He understood the prophecy of the Messiah to come. And the angel comes to Mary and says in Luke 1, 30 through 33, but the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now we know what the name of the Messiah is, the name of the Christ. His name is Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That's out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. So we see this: the prophecies that were given by the Jewish prophets, 
And then we begin to see the fulfillment of these prophecies when Jesus is born. We'll see the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. And we'll look at that a little bit later. After Jesus was born, the angels announced the birth of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And there were shepherds residing in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Just then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11. Today in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, and Micah said that the Messiah, the Christ, the King, would be born in Bethlehem. Today in the city of David, a Savior, there's Savior, the Savior King. Today in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. After Jesus was born, He grew up. He presents himself to the nation of Israel as the Christ. We see in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 8, that Jesus sends his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God was near. So we read about the establishment of the kingdom in Jeremiah. We read about it in Isaiah. We read about it in Zechariah. We read about it in Micah 5, 2. The kingdom was ready to be established. The kingdom was near. The Messiah had come. The king was here. So Jesus sent his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God was near. He enabled his disciples to do miracles. He empowered them to do miracles so that the miracles that Jesus did and the miracles that his disciples did was evidence that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. So Jesus ministers within Israel for three years, presenting himself as the Christ doing the miracles to convince people he was the Christ, which is why John wrote the book of John when we read, I think it's either the last chapter or the next to the last chapter of the book of John. John says, the reason I've written, referring to the book of John, was to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. And by demonstrating in what I wrote that Jesus is the Christ, that people would believe and have eternal life. So the nation of Israel was presented with the person of Christ. They saw him, they saw his miracles. But then in John chapter 19, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the king, as the savior, and they called for his crucifixion. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is with the 11. It's no longer 12, it's 11 at that point. The 11 wanted to know when the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Now, what what are they referring to? Because Jesus spent 40 days we see in Acts chapter 1, with the disciples explaining to them about the kingdom. Well, what's he referring to there? He's referring back to Isaiah 9. He's referring to Jeremiah 23. He's referring to Zechariah chapter 9. He's referring to Micah and to many other of the Jewish scriptures that teach and talk about the coming kingdom of God on earth. So Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples explaining to them about the coming kingdom, which then would have energized them, motivated them to ask the one question that Jesus didn't answer. When are you going to establish the kingdom? And that's when Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father knows those times and dates. Your role right now is to tell people about me. And the Holy Spirit is going to come and empower you to tell people about me. We see that happening when the Holy Spirit comes and enables the disciples to speak in the languages of the nations that came from surrounding the, the nation of Israel. They came to Jerusalem. They heard the message of the Messiah through the disciples in their own languages. And then they carry that message back to their part of the world. After the ascension of Jesus, the angel said that Jesus would return back to earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. We see in Paul's letters that Paul often writes about the coming kingdom of God. He taught about the coming kingdom of God in Acts 20, 25. He taught about the coming kingdom of God in Acts 28, 23 through 31. 
in many of his letters, he references the coming kingdom of God, and it's always a future coming kingdom. In the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, John reveals the eventual but certain return of Jesus to establish his kingdom. John's giving us a view into the future, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies that have been made about Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom. And John writes in Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. That's the fulfillment of Jeremiah. That's the fulfillment of Zechariah. When Jesus becomes the king over the earth upon his return and he establishes his kingdom. This is the kingdom that the prophet Daniel said would come. You can read about that in Daniel 2.44 and in Daniel 7.13 through 14. When the kingdom of God is established on earth by Jesus as king, Peace will flow throughout the earth. Righteousness will flow throughout the earth. Now, with this background information, let's return to our study in Hebrews. And remember, we're looking at the sun in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun. The sun is another title for the Christ, the Messiah, the one coming into the earth to establish peace on earth and to establish peace with God. Jeremiah in 23, 5 through 6 uses both terms, king and savior. You can also look, when we look at savior, you can look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Luke 2, 11, John 1, 29, John 4, 42, Acts 13, 23, Philippians 3, 20, 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, Titus 2, 13, Titus 3, 4 through 6, 1 John 4, 14, all mention Jesus as Savior. In Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son, is displayed as one who would save us from our sins and justify many. So he's a king that's going to bring peace on earth, but he's a Savior who's going to bring peace with God. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, that's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, that's what the entire book of Hebrews is about. It's explaining Isaiah 53, 10, that Jesus was an offering for sin. He was one offering for all sin, for all time, for all people to purchase complete forgiveness of sins, to pay the sin penalty for the world. And after he offered himself for sin, he sat down, that he provided purification of all sins, and then he sat down. So Hebrews explains Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. That's the resurrection. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of light. There's the resurrection. And be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that's the Christ, that's the Messiah, that's the righteous one that Jeremiah said, the righteous one, the Lord, our righteous Savior. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. You can read about that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many or make many people innocent before God, not guilty before God by paying their sin penalty. Through his sin offering, he will justify many. He will be offered for the sins of the world and will justify many or those who believe he is the Messiah, those who believe. He is the Christ, will be declared innocent or righteous or not guilty by God. He will bear their iniquities. He will take upon himself the sins of the world. Remember, as king, the Messiah will wear a crown. That's symbolism. But as savior, he will bear a cross. He will bear the sins of the world upon himself. 
verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death. The penalty for sin is death. The Messiah, the Christ, the Son, offered his life for all sin or the final death payment for all sins, for all people, for all time. And once he did that, he sat down. He poured out his life unto death. Remember Jesus said, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is my blood poured out for the New Testament. This is my blood poured out for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he did. Jesus poured out his blood unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The book of Hebrews explains Isaiah 53, explains fully what this sin offering is. The book of Romans explains what justification is. The book of Hebrews explains what the offering for sin is. Paul explains this justification. He will justify many, Isaiah says. Paul writes about this really all through the book of Romans, but specifically in Romans 5, 1 through 2. You can also look in Acts 13, 23 and Acts 13, 38 through 39. But Paul writes in Romans 5, 1 through 2, therefore, since we have been justified through faith by the work of Christ, right? We have peace with God. So the Savior bore our sins to bring us peace with God. That judgment for sins were taken upon Jesus at the cross. Jesus took the judgment for sins upon himself. Those who are now believers in Christ are at peace with God because they've trusted in Jesus. They have faith in Jesus. Those who've rejected Jesus, God's not counting their sins against them, but we'll see later Those who continue to reject Jesus at the final judgment will be thrown into the lake of fire because of the rejection of Jesus. And we'll take a look at that a little bit later. But Romans 5, 1 through 2, therefore, since we have been justified through faith or through trusting in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We'll see momentarily in Hebrews chapter 12 that the writer of Hebrews is urging the Jewish believer to take hold of grace, to let go of the law, and to take hold of grace. So we've seen that God spoke through the prophets of Israel about the Christ, the Messiah, coming to establish peace on earth and peace with God. The Christ, the Messiah, came. His name is Jesus. He's the Savior from sins, establishing peace with God. He's the King and will one day establish peace on earth. It is through Jesus that God is now revealing himself to the world. So let's return to the beginning of Hebrews where the writer tells the Jewish people that God is now speaking to them through the Son. The Jewish prophets said that the Messiah is coming. We saw that the Messiah, the Christ, did come. His name is Jesus. We saw the rejection of the Messiah in John chapter 19. We saw the resurrection of the Messiah. We saw the ascension of the Messiah coming back to establish a kingdom on earth. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, that's the Jewish people, through the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The writer is writing to the Jewish people to try to convince them that the one to whom the prophets spoke about to their ancestors has now come. He lived, he died, he offered himself for an offering of sin to fulfill Isaiah 53. He rose from the dead, and one day he's going to return. And the writer of Hebrews is seeking to encourage, to motivate to compel the Jewish people to now look to Jesus. God is speaking to them through Jesus, through the person of Jesus and through the work of Jesus. And we saw in Hebrews 12, the appeal to them, don't refuse him who speaks. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, the writer of Hebrews makes one final appeal to the Jewish unbeliever. He's assuming that the Jewish unbeliever has read 
all the way up to that point in the book of Hebrews in AD 65. And he decides to make one final appeal to the Jewish unbelievers to not refuse God's message of the New Testament of grace by rejecting Jesus as the Christ and by rejecting the blood of Jesus that was poured out for their forgiveness of sins, that was offered for their forgiveness of sins. And he's making up an appeal to them to not refuse what God is speaking, what God is saying to them through Jesus. Now, he makes this appeal by contrasting between God speaking to them, that's God speaking to the Jewish people back during the days of Moses at Mount Sinai about law, and he contrasts God speaking to the Jewish people during the days of Moses when the law was given at Mount Sinai. He's contrasting that message with what God is now speaking to the Jewish people through Jesus about the new covenant of grace. And that's what we're going to read about in Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Remember, it's one final evangelistic appeal. In Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 is where we'll start. God spoke about the law from the earthly Mount Sinai, where the law was communicated. You can read about that in Exodus 19 through 20. You can also read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's see what the writer writes to the Jewish unbelievers, seeking to get them to, seeking to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, so that they'll place their trust in Jesus and avoid the judgment to come. Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 says, you, that's the Jewish people to whom God is speaking to about the New Testament of grace. That's the audience that's reading the book of Hebrews. The Jewish audience, the Jewish readers in AD 65. You have not come to a mountain, meaning like your ancestors did in Exodus 19 through 20. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. You have not come to darkness, to gloom, and to storm. You have not come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. And again, you can read about this in Exodus 19 through 20 who heard the word and begged that no further word be spoken to them. All right, Hebrews 12, 20 says, because they could not bear what was commanded. And here's the command that they couldn't bear. It was scary. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And you can read about that in Exodus 19, 12 through 13. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Verse 21 of Hebrews 12, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now, Moses made that statement in Deuteronomy 9, 19. So that's the mountain of law. And the mountain of law is burning with fire, with darkness, with gloom, with storm. It's fear. It's terrible fear. It's death. But then the writer Contrast that mountain and that scene with a different mountain and a totally different scene. And he writes about this in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. It's where God is speaking about grace, this New Testament of grace, from the heavenly Mount Zion where grace is celebrated. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 says, But you, He's referring, again, to the same Jewish audience that he's writing to in Hebrews 12, 18. He says, you haven't come to the mountain of law. God is not speaking to you through the mountain of law. God is now speaking to you from a totally different mountain and about a totally different topic. He's speaking to you about grace. He's speaking to you about Jesus. At the earthly Mount Sinai, God spoke to you through Moses about the law. At this heavenly mountain, Mount Zion, God is speaking to you through Jesus about grace. 
Let's read about this. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you, that's the Jewish people to whom God is speaking to about the New Testament of grace. Those who may be reading this book of Hebrews, whether it was in AD 65 or whether it's in our time today. But you've come to Mount Zion. That's the heavenly mountain of grace. Mount Zion was the highest point outside the city of Jerusalem during Bible times. There's a spiritual Mount Zion that this writer is writing about in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, that's not associated with law, but it's associated with grace. There's a heavenly Jerusalem that's associated with grace, but the earthly Jerusalem was associated with law. That's the contrast going on between Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 and Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you've come to Mount Zion, that's the heavenly mountain of grace. But you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. It's the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's a heavenly city of grace. There's an earthly Jerusalem, which is a city of law. There's a heavenly city, Jerusalem. There's a heavenly Jerusalem, which is the heavenly city of grace. That's the city they've come to. And the writer of Hebrews is painting a vivid picture for them of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, which is based in death and fear and trembling. And this Mount Zion, this heavenly Jerusalem, this city of grace that's full of joy. Paul writes about the city of the New Testament of grace, the heavenly Jerusalem. He contrasts it with the earthly Jerusalem, the city of the Old Testament of law. And he writes about Two Testaments, he writes about two cities in Galatians 4, 21 through 26. Gives us a little bit more insight into Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. See what Paul writes about. He's writing about two women, two sons, two testaments, and two cities in Galatians 4, 21 through 26. And Paul says, he says, tell me you who want to be under the law. That's, that's the audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to as well. He's writing to a group of people who, who were still under law. And he's seeking to convince them to come away from the law and to come to grace, to, to move away from Moses and to come to Jesus, to move away from animal sacrifices and come to the final sacrifice for sins, which is Jesus to come away from the Old Testament of law to the New Testament of grace. So Paul is, is battling the same battle in Galatians 4, 21 through 26. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you aware of what the law says? And obviously they weren't because the law requires perfection for righteousness and no one can be perfect. But Jesus, he lived the perfect life, died for us on the cross and gives us freely the righteousness that the law required. It says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, that's Isaac and Ishmael. One son, that's Ishmael, was by the slave woman, that's Hagar. And the other son, Isaac, was by the free woman, Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. That's effort, that's works, pointing to the law. It's symbolism, Paul's using this symbolism of Hagar and Ishmael as life under the law, works, and effort. But Abraham's son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. That's grace. That's faith. Verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants or two testaments, covenant and testament, the exact same Greek word, some translations will use the word covenant, others will use the word testament, but the biblical manuscripts always have the exact same Greek word, regardless of whether a translation will use covenant or testament. Verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenant or two testaments or two different ways of relating to God, one by works and effort, law, and one by grace and faith. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, that's the law, and bears children who are to be slaves to the law. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. We just read about Mount Sinai in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. It was when the law was given. There was death and darkness and destruction and fear and trembling. That's symbolizing Hagar and Ishmael and works. 
This is Hagar, verse 25 of Galatians chapter 4. Now, Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. When we read this, we have to read it in real time. Paul was writing this around AD 51. So what Paul is saying is that as he was writing the book of Galatians, Jerusalem is associated with law. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Slavery to what? The law. So the earthly Jerusalem is associated with the law and slavery. And back during this time, the law was alive and well in the minds of men, not in God's mind because the law had come to an end. And sacrifices were still happening. They were still following Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And they were producing slaves, slaves to the law. And a slave's mentality is fear. There's no joy. It's fear. And that's what was being produced in Jerusalem in AD 51. Jerusalem, because she is in slavery with her children, referring to the earthly city of Jerusalem in AD 51, it was a law-based city producing slaves to the law. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the city of grace that we see in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. And she is our mother, or grace is producing free sons and daughters who relate to God in joy and not in fear. All right, let's return to Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, talking to the reader, the Jewish reader in 8065, saying, God's not bringing you to Mount Sinai in the law where there's fear. He's bringing you to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem where there's joy. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. He's contrasting the fear in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 with the joy of the new covenant in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, the fear of Mount Sinai and the law and the joy of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and joy that was there. Look at this. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels, too many to be counted. The angels are celebrating grace. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, nothing to be afraid of in the New Testament of grace. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. They're celebrating the New Testament of grace. You've come to the church of the firstborn. Now, the firstborn is talking about Jesus. You can read about that in Colossians 1, 15 through 16. I've done a couple of teachings on, on that on the Grace Reach podcast. You can go to Colossians number 10 and Colossians number 11 to listen to what I was teaching about Jesus being the firstborn. But the firstborn means ruler, leader, the one in charge. That's Colossians 115, Psalm 89, 27 through 29. Firstborn is also the first one to rise from the dead and to never die again. That's Colossians 116 and 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 21. As the firstborn, Jesus is the leader of the New Testament gathering, the church, those who are believers in Jesus. So Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, there's a set of books and there is a book. The set of books contains the names of those who haven't come to faith in Jesus. They refuse to hear, to listen. They refuse to place their faith in Jesus and to trust in Jesus. Those in the book are believers in Jesus. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation 21, verse 27. These books and the book are opened at the great white throne judgment. 
The books record the names of those who did not believe. They're just as guilty and righteous. Their acts, their deeds as evidence of their sinfulness. They've rejected Jesus and his offering for their sins. They're thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, 15 and 21, 8. And then there's the book, which is the Lamb's Book of Life, and it contains the names of believers. Their deeds are not judged because they've trusted in Jesus and they've been declared righteous. They're at peace with God, Romans 5, 1 through 2. They've experienced forgiveness and purification from sins and cleansing from sins, and they're innocent before God. And they enter the new heaven and the new earth. That's Revelation 21, 27. All right. Let's return to Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. It says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, or to the assembly of the believers led by Jesus. They're celebrating the new covenant of grace with the angels. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We've been made perfect internally, cleansed internally from sins and eternally from sins, forgiven fully. You can see that in Hebrews 10, 14. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant or a new testament or a whole new way of relating to God that's not based upon the law and fear, but it's based upon grace and joy. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new testament and to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke out and cried out from the ground that Cain was guilty. The blood of Jesus cries out from the cross that his blood provides innocence and righteousness for those who believe. Notice that the writer of Hebrews is bringing his Jewish readers to observe the gathering of those celebrating the New Testament of grace. I mean, he is bringing them, he gives them a front row view of the joyful assembly of the New Testament of grace. And he tells them, you have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of the living God. This is the city designed and built by God that we studied in other parts of Hebrews. You've come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church, the gathering of the believers in Jesus. You've come to Jesus leading this assembly. You've come to God. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the firstborn, the mediator of a New Testament. And you've come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks we are righteous, forgiven of all sins, cleansed from all sins, and innocent of all sins. Then after showing his Jewish reader, after showing them the celebration of the New Testament of grace by all those in attendance, he states these words in Hebrews 12.25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, we just read that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, right? And we read in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, that God spoke to the people of Israel through prophets, and now he's speaking to the people of Israel through the Son, and specifically, he's speaking to the people of Israel about the blood of the Son, the offering of the Son's blood to establish the New Testament of grace. God spoke to the Jewish people in Hebrews 1 through 3 that Jesus is the Son of God. That's Hebrews 1. Jesus is the Son of Man. That's Hebrews 2. That's fully God. Hebrews 1, fully human. Hebrews 2, he spoke that Jesus' blood purifies from all sins. That's Hebrews 1 through 3. And he explains all this in the rest of Hebrews. And then he spoke that Jesus' blood established the New Testament of grace. That's all through Hebrews. It's in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. And so the question for the Jewish people, there are two questions. Question number one is, would the Jewish people reject Jesus as the Christ? Would they refuse to listen? Would the Jewish people reject Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man? Would they reject his blood that established the New Testament of grace? Continuing life under the law, continuing to sacrifice animals in their rejection. Question number two, 
Would the Jewish people respond in faith to Jesus as the Christ and faith in his blood that established the New Testament of grace? Would they refuse to listen or would they respond in faith? Hebrews 12, 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So the writer of Hebrews warns the Jewish people about the judgment they will experience if they refuse to listen. If they reject Jesus as the Christ and the New Testament he established in his blood, the only thing left for them is judgment. We see that in Hebrews 10, 26 through the end of that chapter. We see it again here in Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. The writer has warned the Jewish people in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 about perishing in judgment if they refuse to rest in the New Testament of grace by rejecting Jesus. Here's another warning in Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. It says this, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they, that's those in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 in context, those who are at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, if they did not escape judgment under the law, you can also read about this in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's at Mount Sinai, that's the law, that's Moses, God speaking through Moses, how much less will we? Now, this is a national we. This isn't a, a bunch of believers he's referring to here. This is a national we. We refer to ourselves in the United States of America. We'll use the word we many times. It's a national we here. How much less will we? It's, it's a Jewish-Israeli national we, the Jewish person, we as Jewish people. How much less will we, a national we, how will the Jewish people escape judgment is what he's saying. Now, I teach on this in Hebrews teaching number 41 and in number 51 for a full teaching on the judgment to come. I'll talk a little bit about it tonight. You can also, again, read about it in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Now, what was going on in heaven? The celebration of the new covenant. They were watching this celebration. But also there's a warning that if you reject this New Testament of grace and you reject Jesus as the Son and His purification from sins, then you're going to go through judgment. How much less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven? If we turn away from God, don't refuse to listen to His voice. God is speaking through the Son. And if the Jewish people turn away from God who is speaking to them through the Son, how will they escape judgment? And the obvious answer here is they won't. And then he begins writing about judgment in Hebrews 12, 26. At that time, he's referring to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 through 20, what he had just written about in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. At that time, his voice shook the earth there at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised, he's referring to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, about another coming judgment, a future coming judgment. But now God has promised in Haggai 2, 6, and he quotes Haggai 2, 6. Here's the promise, a promise of judgment. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's another coming judgment. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 13, 40 through 43, Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3. And then Revelation 20 talks about it, the great white throne judgment where the books were open and the book was opened. So once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That's the righteous, that's the ungodly, that's the old earth. That is created things so that what cannot be shaken, that's the righteous ones. That's those who trusted in Jesus. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Remember, those whose names are in the book enter into the new heaven and the new earth. They remain to enter into the new heaven and the new earth. Those whose names are in the books are cast into the lake of fire. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, that's the promised kingdom of God that was promised in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 as well. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, there's this future coming kingdom. We looked at, at that in Revelation eleven fifteen, when Jesus does come. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Now, the word thankful there is charis, and the Greek way of translating this is let us hold on to grace. And so worship God or relate to God acceptably. God is pleased when we relate to him by grace. Referring to the Jewish people, they wanted to hold on to the law. And the writer said, no, hold on to grace, not the law. Let the law go. If you hold on to the law, you're going through judgment. If you hold on to grace by faith, you're going into the new heaven, into the new earth, into this eternal city that God has designed and built, this heavenly Jerusalem, this city of joy where thousands and thousands of angels are celebrating with the church and with Jesus, this New Testament of grace. And so worship God, relate to God acceptably. God is pleased when we relate to him by grace with reverence and awe or being wowed by grace, he's telling the Jewish reader. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, we're going to look at consuming fire in just a minute, but that's referring to judgment. But very quickly, the phrase, let us be thankful in Hebrews 12, 28, which is how some translations translate the Greek as let us be thankful. In the original Greek, it reads as follows. In the New King James Version, in the American Standard Version, in the Berean Literal Translation, the King James Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the World English Bible, and Young's Literal Translation translates it this way. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us hold on to grace. That's what the writer's telling the Jewish people. Let go of the law. If you don't let go of the law, you're going through judgment, and God is a consuming fire. Oh, but if you, if you have grace, if you rest in the New Testament of grace, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, by grace, it says, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Let us have grace by which we may serve or relate to God, worship God, know God acceptably. It pleases God when we relate to him by grace with reverence and godly fear or with awe, wowed by grace. So the Jewish people are left with two decisions. That's what the writer is bringing them to. And will you refuse to listen and reject God or you, will you place your faith in Jesus and respond? to what God is saying to you through Jesus. Relate to God by grace or refuse to listen to God and continue under law. They had those two decisions to make. Real quick, our God is a consuming fire. The Jewish people understood that's a phrase that's totally talking about judgment, completely 100% talking about judgment to come. Matthew 13, 40 through 43, Jesus puts it this way. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. He was referring here at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes back. He establishes the kingdom of God on earth. At the end of that thousand year, that's the end of the age. That's the end of that thousand-year reign of Jesus. He says the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire. Verse 41, he explains this. The Son of Man will send out his angels at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Revelation 20 now. It's right before the book and the books are open. It's right before those in the books are thrown into the lake of fire and those in the book go into the new heaven and the new earth. So we're at that, that end of that age. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That's why we see in Revelation 21, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more heartache, there's no more death, there's no more disease, there's no more destruction, there's no, no more violence. It's all gone, and, and the new earth is here where there's joy and there's righteousness and there's peace forever. They, the angels, verse 42 of verse 13, will throw them, all who do evil, all who call sin, into the blazing furnace. That's the consuming fire. That's Revelation 20, 11 through 15, when they're thrown into the lake of fire. 
And there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, that's those who trusted in Jesus. Paul writes about how does a person become righteous before God in Romans. says it's by grace through faith. It's a gift. Jesus took our sinfulness. He offers us his righteousness. We receive it by faith. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's Revelation 21, 1 through 5, when they enter into the new earth. And whoever has ears, let them hear. You could easily say, don't refuse him who speaks. Revelation 13, 47 through 50. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish, Jesus said. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish. That's the righteous ones, those who placed their faith in Jesus. They collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. That's the unrighteous. That's the sinful. All who cause and do evil, those who've rejected Jesus. 49, verse 13 of, of chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 49 reads, This is how it will be at the end of the age. Again, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus, we're right at Revelation chapter 20. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. The wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire. The righteous will go into the new earth. The righteous are those who place their faith in Jesus. The wicked are those who have rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace. That's the consuming fire. That's Revelation 2014, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, this coming judgment of those who've rejected Jesus. And he ends that in 2 Peter 3, 13, when he says, but in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's Revelation 21 through 22. It's Isaiah 65, 17. So, how would the Jewish people reading Hebrews 10, 25 through 29, respond to the warning of the writer concerning God speaking to them through Jesus and no longer through the prophets? Would they refuse to listen to God and reject Jesus as the Christ, as the Son? Would they reject his blood that established the New Testament of grace and experience judgment in the consuming fire of God? Or would they respond in faith by believing Jesus is the Christ and that he established the New Testament of grace through his blood? Just like God spoke to the people of Israel in AD 65 about Jesus, and just like the writer of Hebrews was writing in AD 65 to the Jewish people, God continues to speak to people today through Jesus. The message hasn't changed. The generations have changed. The years have changed. The people have changed. But the person of Jesus hasn't. His work on the cross hasn't. The establishment of the New Testament in his blood hasn't changed. There's still an offer by God to people all over the world today to trust in Jesus, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to receive the free gift of righteousness, to take God up on his offer of grace, this gift of grace, to avoid the judgment to, to come and to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth where there's no more pain and suffering and sorrow and death and disease and destruction. And maybe there's someone watching this on a YouTube video. Maybe there's someone who's listening on a podcast and you've never trusted in Jesus. You've never placed your faith in Jesus, or you may be listening and, and you, may, you may not be sure if you've trusted in Jesus or if you placed your faith in Jesus. So whether you're sure that you haven't or you're not sure if you have, there's one thing we both can know is that right now today you can be sure that you're trusting in Jesus and his payment for your sins to cleanse you of sins, to forgive you of sins. He's offering you his righteousness. And today you can trust in Jesus. And sometimes it's helpful for people just to say a very simple prayer. It's a way of expressing your faith in Jesus to God. And I'm just going to say a very simple prayer as a way for you to express your faith in Jesus so that you can know today that you have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven, that you're righteous and innocent and not guilty before God, 
and that one day you're going to live on the new earth with God, with Jesus, with the angels, with all those who have believed. And here's the prayer. You can just repeat after me. God, today I place my faith in Jesus and I receive full forgiveness for my sins. And through faith in Jesus, I received your gift of righteousness where I'm completely innocent of all sins. And I now have eternal life. If you made that decision to trust in Jesus today, I'd love to hear from you. My email is bradr1966 at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, gracereach.org. You can go to the contact page and send me a message through there as well. I would love to know that you trusted in Jesus today. I'd love to help you grow in your relationship with, with God as well. So please let me know that you trusted in Jesus today. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.